Hello, wonderful listeners. Today, we continue in the discussion about fear. In the last episode, Becoming Fearless, guest Kevin Thompson helped us identify where fear could be hindering us from moving forward in our lives. In this episode, he gives tools and resources to be fearless and have courage. You'll learn how to live fearlessly in your homes, in your business, in your relationships, and secure your best future possible. We cover a lot of ground between these two episodes, so be sure to get his book, Fearless Families, for more in-depth details. Fearless Families is available on Amazon. Also, subscribe to this Rise Up podcast. That would be a wonderful encouragement to keep delivering content that inspires and motivates listeners to live their best lives possible. It's a joy to be with you again today. Let's go in now to being fearless. You talk about life, courage, and the net. Explain what that net is, that safety net. Yeah, so... so to me, the safety net of, of life is, is that of love. And the image I get is, um, you know, you, you watch trapeze artists, and they, they do this beautiful thing. They have the swinging bar, and, and it, think about the courage that it takes to let go of one bar and to catch another, or even beyond that, the courage it takes to let go of one bar and to be caught by another who's swinging on another bar. And I mean, it takes tremendous courage to do that and to let go. But whenever they first begin to learn these skills and these tactics, they practice on the ground. And then they begin to move up in the air, and they have a net that's underneath them. And so what gives them the courage to try new things, to learn new things, to let go, to fly through the air, is the knowledge that the net is there. It's going to catch them. Now, eventually, whenever they master that, they can get to the ability where the net is no longer necessary, but then our metaphor has lost its power. But to me, as I'm looking at my children, as I'm looking at myself, my wife, my friends, my coworkers, I talk a lot about the church of the afraid and the church of the brave. Uh, love is the net. Love is now the, 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 what gives us the courage and the ability to try new things, to take risk. I want my children to always know that there is such love in our home that as they branch out, as they experience life and go out and take risk, that their mother and I will be there for them. I, I, we won't always rescue them from, from all the plights of life, but there is this very kind of foundational concept that we are here, that we love you, and as long as we're around, you're never going to be alone in what you're going through in life. And, and I think in many ways, as we look at our own home, so we're talking about a value now of celebrate courage. Well, how do we encourage courage? In part, we empower with love. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a great thing for a person to begin to ask. Whenever I'm lacking the courage to do what is right, in many times that is a... a an evidence that I am not connected with somebody the way I need to be connected, and I'm not feeling loved the way that I need to feel loved. The greater my connection, the greater my courage. The less my connection, the less my courage. And so if risk is something I struggle with, uh, if I'm not being brave, and whenever I'm talking about this, I'm not, I'm not talking about the, the courage to you know try to jump over some great chasm. I talk about the courage to lay my heart out on the table, 
to be vulnerable, to admit weakness, to admit fault, to admit need. Um, whenever I lack the courage to do that, it's probably a sign that I'm not connected the way I need to be connected because that connection gives us love and love is the net which empowers courage. I think, you know, in this day and age, we assume that everyone has someone, whether it be a a friend or, or a spouse, significant other, someone they go to church with, someone they work with. Some people, I honestly don't think they have a safety net. What would you, what what would you tell to them? Yeah, then it becomes a question of, of how do we develop that? Mm-hmm. Uh, of okay, no judgment whatsoever on on the state in which you're in. You mm-hmm. can get there for a thousand different reasons, many of them not your own choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but moving forward, you don't have to stay there. And the reality is, none of us were meant to do this life alone. We were all meant to be connected with other people. Uh, you know, I mean, my first marriage book is Friends, Partners, and Lovers. It goes from Genesis chapter 2. And it's this idea that God looked at Adam and said it's not good for man to be alone. And there is the the big picture of marriage within that. But I think beyond that, there's a basic concept of friendship, that we were meant to be in friendship with other people. It's one of the beautiful aspects of the church. The church is meant to, to give us this new family. Uh, and so if a person is truly alone— I think to to recognize that is a powerful thing, but you cannot stay there. And you have to figure out, one, how did I get here? And so what are the choices I have made that have possibly led to this, this position that I'm in? But then beyond that, what are the choices that weren't of my own control? And how can I forgive people for that? And then have the trust to begin to build these new relationships and to recognize that we were meant to be connected with other people. And whenever we are disconnected and whenever we are totally isolated— that comes with an extreme cost. And I think if, if there's any gifts of this past year, of 2020, 2021, of COVID, uh, I think it revealed to us the danger of isolation. I'm an introvert. I don't really need many people. Uh, and yet even I, at times this past year, it uh, was awful. felt it, no doubt. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and so I think to recognize that, that we need people, and then to have the courage to lean into relationships, to try uh, new things. I was talking to my daughter about this uh, just this week. She's in junior high, right? And it was the question of, how many people did you initiate conversation with today? Her comment was, well, you know, nobody talked to me. Okay, I get that. How many people did you talk to? And if you don't initiate this conversation, people may not know that you want friendship, that you want connection. That's there. People around you love you. They're not. They wouldn't hurt you on purpose. Now some might, but not everybody. And so you're projecting something now that's that's communicating something different than what you desire. I think a lot of people do that. The old illustration I use, I don't think it's in this book. I think it's in, in, in another one. But the old illustration I use is my dog. So we have a German shepherd, Ruby. And when the kids were little, Ruby didn't get the attention that she needed. Uh, we were busy with the kids and all that. She's a big, strong dog. And I would walk outside, and she would jump and be so excited. But the problem was she was so excited and so big and so excited that I was out there, it made me not want to go out there. And that her her aggression in that moment to me, because she so needed that connection, actually prevented the connection. What Ruby the dog did, a lot of us do. Our need is so great for human connection that sometimes we don't recognize what we are doing to prevent that. And I'm not talking about romantic relationships here, although it works into that. But I'm talking about just in general life. We all need friendships. Now, we need it at different levels. There are some 
who if they don't have 20 best friends, they're suffering. There are other people like me who just need a few, uh, but we all need somebody. We need a community. And if you don't have that, I think it's vital that you recognize that and start to take steps forward. And here's the reality. You begin to say, all right, I'm going to work on this on the next six months. I'm going to read books. I'm going to investigate. I'm going to take steps. And if six months from now you still feel like you don't have a community and don't have a connection, then I think you need to seek professional counseling and to sit down and to ask an outsider, what am I doing? Is there anything I'm doing to prevent this? And can you help me and to assist me uh, to, to, to kind of propel me forward? There's an interesting study that was done. And so... Uh, a person was struggling to 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 get to get dates, and so she went to see a counselor. And, and the counselor saw this this woman was very beautiful and couldn't imagine any reason why. And yet she had not been asked out or anything like that. So so the counselor said, "Okay, I want you to go to your favorite restaurant, and I want you to go by yourself. And, and as you're there, I want you to just mentally take note: who's around you, what's going on, all these basic things." And, and so the person did that. And, and came back and reported to the counselor. Nobody came over the table. There were guys there that were interesting, all those kind of things. And as the counselor began to ask what was going on, um, she asked, where was your phone during all this? And the lady said, well, my phone was out. Well, were you on it? Yeah, I was on it. Well, how much were you on it? I was on it the whole time. And so the counselor said, okay, I want you to go to the exact same spot on the exact same night, and this time I want you to put your phone in your purse. Put the phone in the purse. And as she came back and reported this time, there were several people that she ended up interacting with. Well, unknowingly, she was announcing to others, I don't want to talk to you. When we're on our phone, it kind of says, I don't want to talk to you. We find safety. Now, no, let's go back to the book now. Mm-hmm. We find safety in a material thing, a connection there, and we find a safety in the midst of that. But what it's actually doing is preventing us from trusting and having a connection with a human being. And it's projecting something that we don't even mean to project. Mm-hmm. And so I think we all need a community, and if a per- person doesn't have it, they shouldn't feel guilty over it, but they need to start taking steps to make sure that that's not what defines them a year from now. And sometimes that means the need for professional help. And, and I hope your listener hears that from a proper standpoint. Guys like me have been notoriously wrong whenever it comes to counseling in thinking that, well, as long as you got the Bible, as long as you got Jesus, you don't need this modern psychology. That's not me at all. I have a counselor. I've been in need of counseling. My children have gone to counseling. My wife and I did premarital counseling. People come to my office all the time. I assist them. Uh, We all need help at times, and we live in a beautiful day in which people have had schooling and training and understanding, and they can truly lovingly assist us uh, through the, the places in life that we are stuck. And if this is a place that somebody is stuck, get help, and hopefully you can get unstuck. This is kind of going to flow with our conversation that's not in your book, but it does kind of tie back to safety. 2020 was, you know, of course, uh, the the year that COVID broke to people, and so many people had forced isolations. Their way of life was abruptly interrupted. Now, moving forward, there's going to be some people who are just can't wait to fling the door open and reenter society. But then there's going to be others who are going to have a very much a problem reengaging out of fear and uh, reemerging because they've become quite safe in their own little atmosphere. How how are we going to become the society that we were before? How are we going to um, 
um, you know, urge, gently urge those people back into the land of the living? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and I think it's going to be different for different people, no doubt. So Fearless Families launched and we had a, a book signing. You you were there. Mm. And uh, so it's just, it was a small gathering, maybe, maybe max of 100 people who filtered through over a two-hour period. And uh, after it was over, I uh, came home. We went out to eat, my family and I, and then we came home and uh, my son immediately went to bed about 45 minutes earlier than what he normally does. My wife crashed on the couch. I crashed on the other end of the couch. My daughter went upstairs and was talking at 1,000 miles an hour. Well, in my house, you have three introverts and one extrovert. So Ella was as happy as could be. She had been with all these people, been filled up, right? I was exhausted. Well, I'm an introvert. That, that took something out of me. And I told Jenny later, I, I said, Jenny, I am, I am out. My, my people muscle is weak. It, it's, it's like mm-hmm. you haven't worked out for a year, mm-hmm. and you go work out. It's exhausting. Well, I'm, I'm used to that, especially being a pastor. I'm used to that every Sunday. You have this hit of people, and you're interacting, and it's engaging and all that. Well, I hadn't done that for a year. Even though our church is meeting, we discourage greeting out in the foyer, and you got to go to your cars immediately. And I haven't had an experience like that until the book signing. And I went home just absolutely exhausted. And I told Jenny, this is something I'm going to have to get used to again. And so I think that's going to be true for a lot of people. I'm really worried about many of our senior citizens mm-hmm. who over this past year who, who have just sat in the recliner mm-hmm. because they, there wasn't much they could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, now they have the opportunity to get back out, and maybe they won't. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we're going to have to do is, one, we're going to have to recognize our own selves and give ourselves peace and, and, and time and forgiveness, but it's a process to reengage in what's going on. But then, two, I think we also need to recognize what is it that we need and it may not feel the best in the moment, but it's best in the long run. And that's what we need to do. And the reality is we need to be around people as best we possibly can. And hopefully, I don't, I don't want to go back to the society we had. I hope we can move forward to a better society uh, to recognize one thing that, that's happened during COVID from a pastoral standpoint. I spent a lot of time on the phone because you couldn't see people, but you'd call people. And one thing that became clear to me is I need to do more of that in the future. Just the, the basics of a simple phone call. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. I love to text, mm-hmm. right? And, and texting is fine for a lot of people. But there's a, there's a generation older than me that doesn't like to get a text from me. They like to get a phone call from mm-hmm. me. And I need to call them. And I need to call some of my friends and, and just have that kind of human connection and interaction. And so I think to recognize that and to intentionally take steps toward that is, is the way to go move, move forward. What lessons about love did you learn from your grandmother? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of things. I, I think in many ways, I've all I, I I don't think it's in fearless families. I think it's probably in friends, partners, and lovers, in which I talked about. So my grandparents were married for seventy years, and um, and so with my uh, my grandmother, I always said uh, was the toughest person I knew, and my grandfather was the most tender person uh, I knew. And, and so she, she taught me so much. Whenever we talk about the net of love and, and how that gives you courage, there was never any doubt, uh, you know, that my grandmother loved me uh, and, and just the foundation that I think that formed in so many ways. And I think I, I would hope that all of us in part have at least one person or two people. I'm fortunate because I have many people that I look to as those who just taught me uh, what love looks like. 
and the sacrifice that comes from it and, and the idea that life is better in, in the midst of love. And it's not really these material things that, that will give us the, the peace uh, about all those things. And so to me, uh, it, it, my, what my grandmother taught me in so many ways is in a, in a very humble, uh, subtle, faithful, trusting, compassionate way uh, that love truly is better. What is real love? I think real love is the idea of I'm going to do what is in the best interest of another person, no matter how they feel. So it's not necessarily that they like it or appreciate it. And so with my children, uh, to love them in a, in a right way means sometimes they're going to think that I don't love them. It means that what's best for their heart in this moment is not necessarily what they want uh, in, in the moment. And so I think love... I mean, Jesus gives us what the ultimate picture of love is. Literally, I'm going to do what is best for you, whether you like it or not. What are some symptoms if you have an inability to receive love or give love? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I love that basic phrase. We use it at our church a lot, that we're basically learning two things, how to love and how to be loved. That's about it. I mean, Why is that so hard? Everything else, yeah, but I think a lot of people don't recognize it. I think we understand the difficulty to love. I think we don't recognize how difficult some of us have to receive love, mm-hmm. to, to be uh, love. And our pride uh, eats away. Uh, the, the ego, for, for some people, the ego is I have to earn it. If I don't earn it, I don't deserve it. Well, okay, you don't deserve it, but you can still receive it. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about grace is that it's given to us, it's not earned or deserved, but a lot of people, they immediately put up these barriers of, of what, that's, what that is like. And I think within the, the home of the brave, uh, that I have to learn how to forgive, but I also have to learn how to be forgiven, to truly embrace that, that she has forgiven me and not, is not holding this over me anymore, that yes, I need to learn how to, to love my wife, I have to also learn how to be loved. How to, how to bask in the glow of this love that I don't deserve in, in any way and to appreciate that and to trust her uh, in the midst of it, that, that this is going to be okay. One of, the, one of the things I really struggled with early on in marriage was being able to admit uh, unhappiness or being able to admit that, hey, what you said there I didn't like or it hurt me or I want something different. I was just so afraid that if I said it, uh, the relationship might be at risk. Well, that's unfair to her. I had to learn that no, she her love is real and it's here. And so have the courage to so here's what happened. I wouldn't say it, so I would actually hold part of my heart back from her. And, and how unfair is that to her? I, I'm I'm not giving her the totality of who I am, even though I said I do. I said here I am. And then I'm holding that back out of fear that if I say this, she may not love me in return. And that then then limits her ability to show love to me. And so I had to learn early on in marriage that, you know what, I can say it, and it's not going to kill us. As a matter of fact, it's going to make us better. Because I might miss, I might understand that I've misunderstood, or she may not know what it is. And to be willing to put my whole heart out on the table uh, and to give her the opportunity to serve me, to, for her to give me the opportunity to serve her, is a much better way to, to live life. Popular culture likes to describe love as this dramatic feeling. But, but what did God 
say that love in a home should look like and be like? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, to summarize what you just said, I think the, the modern thought on love is that it is a force. It's a force that comes upon us that we can't control. And so we use language like, I fell in love, as though I didn't have a choice about it. I think the biblical example to us is that love is a choice that results in an action. So, so society thinks that love is a force that results in a feeling. So if I don't have the feeling, I really don't have the love. Whereas biblically, love is a choice that results in an action. Notice feeling isn't involved in that. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't feel love. We very easily can. But it also means at times we may not feel it. But we still have a responsibility to choose the way of love. And that's what I'm talking about here in Fearless Families is to make the intentional choice to do the actions uh, uh, of what love actually requires of us. You use the acronym CARE um, in regards to leaders. Talk talk to us about that. Yeah, it's just kind of my way of of understanding what is my responsibility as a leader. And I think about this as a leader in, in my home. I think about this as a leader in our church. Uh, as as a, a leader in the midst of nonprofits around the community, so so in the end, basically, what are the things that I can't delegate? And so I just use the the acronym of care. Of this is what I need to care about. The first is character. That I that a leader is ultimately in charge of the character of their organization. We often don't think about organizations having character. We think about individuals having character, and they do. But so do organizations of churches. What is the character? How are decisions made? Are people valued? We, we live in a time right now where it's all over the headlines of churches that literally care more about their own name than individual people. And, and people become expendable, uh, all in an attempt to save the face, to save the appearance mm-hmm. of the name of the church or the name of the Christian organization. I mean, there, there's multiple examples in, in the headlines even today. And so as a leader, I can't delegate that. Now, I can't be the only one that watches that, but I have to constantly come back to this idea of here's the character that our organization is going to have. Here's the character that this family is going to show. Here's how we deal with truth. Here's how we don't lie. Here's that how we're not lazy. Here's how we treat people. Here's how we value people. Here's how we will do the loving thing and let the chips fall where they may. So the character of who we are. And then I think about the anxiety within the organization, which obviously relates to the book that we're talking about now. People tend not to do good jobs whenever they're anxious. And so I, a leader has to figure out what are the anxieties that I can alleviate with those who are involved in the organization that I can take ownership for? And then what are the anxieties that I can't? They're, they're just part of it. they got to learn to deal with it. But, but I can begin to, with some of the people that work for me, I can begin to let them know, hey, you're, you are going to be supported. Hey, we're not going to pull the rug out from underneath you, that we are going to give you the resources that you're going to need to do your job. I can remove some of the anxieties uh, or I can create anxieties that I don't need to do. And so I think about uh, character. I think about anxieties. I think about responsibilities. That it's, it's ultimately a leader's job to make sure that people know what they're responsible for and who's responsible for what. And, and so if I'm ever walking through the church and I see something, i got to ask the question, whose job is that? And if I can't answer that, and if nobody in our organization can answer that, that's my fault. It doesn't mean I'm, I'm the one that needs to take care of that. 
It means I do need to clarify the responsibilities that they have to make sure that they take care of that. I think about this within the concept of a family. My kids need to know what they're responsible for. And as they grow, their responsibility increases. For a lot of parents, they never clarify the responsibilities or the expectations uh, that are on the child. And so as the child grows up, the child thinks, I have no responsibilities. And then we see the consequences that come from that. Or parents refuse to, as the child matures, give them more responsibilities of what's going on. So whenever I think about leadership, I think about the character, I think about the anxieties, I think about the responsibilities, and then I think about the energy. That as a leader, I am in part in charge with the energy that's engaged within the organization, for me, within the church, within the worship service, within the staff team of what's going on, that I need to be pushing us. If I truly believe in the mission of where we're headed, it's going to take energy to get there. And I need to make sure that I'm adding energy. I'm not taking away. I need to make sure that I'm hiring people that are adding in energy. One of my friends uh, uses the old example. It's like a rowboat, that either you're paddling with us or you're not. It, it, there's no in-between. You can't just stick your paddle in the water, you're hurting us. Or you can paddle against us and you're hurting us. So we got to make sure that we're all paddling together. That's going to create a, a forward momentum. It's going to create an energy in what's going on. I think about this in the family. So many fathers have no idea the power that they have to bring positive energy into what's going on. Instead, they bring a negative energy into the family and they can't figure out why things aren't going well. But, but when a father... And maybe this is overstatement. I don't mean for it to, and I, I don't want to be sexist in any way. Never would want that. But I think in, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, the husband sets the climate for the home. In, in other words, in many cases, he's the one that determines, is communication going to be open in this place or not? Are we going to have fun or not? Are we going to have to walk on eggshells? Or is there going to be a sense of safety and trust? Now, this isn't universally true. But in most cases, if, if a father would recognize that I can bring energy into this family, uh, the family will thrive because of it. And yet what they don't realize is many times they are sucking energy out of those relationships and everybody's suffering because of it. Or if they cannot provide that energy, at least give permission for that energy <laughs> to exist. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an introvert. I'm, I'm laid back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty quiet. You wouldn't see it here, but I am more normally pretty quiet. And so even, even from a work standpoint, one thing I have to recognize is I'm not the most energetic guy, but I know energy is important. So I better hire people who are different than me, who the staff room is going to be fun the moment they walk in the door. And then I have to show that, that not only is that allowed, it's actually encouraged. Mm-hmm. And that's one way I'm in charge of the energy, even if I'm not the one bringing it. I'm going to get blasted for using the words, gave permission. <laughs> <laughs> women, women are going to like that. Yeah, but, but I mean, that goes both ways. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, that, it's, it's not the idea that, that he, he's the only one that can allow that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes both ways mm-hmm. because the, the, the wife also has to give permission for those things to happen. You talked about the five signs of integrity. Say what you mean, do what you say, respect other people's time, and respect other people's decisions, admit your mistakes. How did you come up with those and um, elaborate on those a little bit? And why, why is integrity an esteemed value to have 
in a loving home. Yeah, well, and I think in so many ways, whenever we think about the roof of appearances, which is we we tend to prefer to project strength than to admit where we actually are. And, and if we think about that, that is hypocrisy. Uh, and in the end, that is a lack of integrity. In, integral, integrity, integral. Think about the concept of wholeness. And within wholeness, you can even take the word holiness within mm. all of that. All those things are related. And so whenever I think about the roof of the home of the brave, we're replacing the roof of appearances with the roof of heart, the heart of who I am. Uh, above all else, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. I, I think I, about the heart of my marriage, the heart of my kids, that I'm responsible in many ways for those things. And in order to nurture them properly, in order to pastor them properly, in order to lead them properly, it requires integrity. And so whenever we think about the roof of heart, I also think about the roof of trust, of character. All those words kind of bleed together for me. And so what does it mean in the end to have integrity, to have this basic wholeness of who we are? I think in so many ways it starts with words because that's how we are hypocritical. We say one thing and do something else. Or we say something that isn't true in in any way whatsoever. And so I think it begins with this concept of you have to say what you mean. One One of the basic rules that Jenny and I came up with years ago whenever we first got married is, hey, we're not going to read between the lines. We're going to say it. And so if, if I come home and say, hey, do you mind if I play golf tomorrow? And you go, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You better mean go ahead and not, well, you better not. We, we just can't play that game. And one thing we talked about early on is I'm not smart enough to read your mind. And, and you shouldn't be smart enough to read my mind. And so why not just say, hey, here's, here's what I think about this. And so then that bleeds over into every other aspect. Think about, go back to what we talked about, the, the Thompson family values. Mm-hmm. We do not lie. That's it. We, we don't lie. Mm-hmm. And that goes back into you just say what you mean. And so it means that you don't hold back. It doesn't mean that you're blabbing everything that you believe, and you're, you're definitely not using hurtful words. Mm-hmm. But you do reveal your heart in what it is that, that's going on. And then whenever you say what, if, you, if you're saying what you mean, you better do what you say. You better back that up. That's what builds trust. Whenever you consistently do what you say over time, trust is built. I, I work with a lot of couples that trust has been hurt, it's been injured, right, by poor choices. Mm-hmm. And and somebody will, uh, the wife will say, can I ever trust him again? And he might say, can I ever earn her trust again? And I always say, absolutely. And, and here's here's what it means. It means you do what you say every single time in small ways, you consistently do what you say, and over time, that's going to build up trust. And when trust is present, you can truly put your heart out on the table. I can talk to you about anything if I trust you. If I don't fear that you might use me or manipulate me or make fun of me, it's why I can walk into a counselor's office because there's confidentiality. I trust them. I can lay anything out on the table. When trust is present, we can talk about anything. And so if you will do what you say consistently, it's important for parents. Kids learn very quickly. She threatens, but she doesn't back it up. Mm-hmm. I'll pull this car over. Y'all don't stop it. I'm going to pull this car over. I remember when, when Ella was really little, she was going to go spend the night with my sister. And, um, and so she had done something, and she was really looking forward to it. And she had done something, right? And so she was in trouble, so I put her in timeout. 
And, uh, and I said, now, Ella, if, if you do that again, I'm going to call Aunt Lee and you're not going to be able to spend the night. And Ella looks at me and goes, call her. Well, I don't want to call her. I want you to go spend yeah, the night. I need the time. But yeah, mm-hmm. she had called my bluff in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I think parents do this so often we don't even realize it. It's one reason whenever I, I, I talk about discipline, I talk about you want to give uh, the minimum viable dose. What is the least amount of discipline necessary to get your point across? Because I think what parents tend to do is we make these outrageous threats that even our kids know, I don't think they're going to do that. And what we're teaching in that moment is, I'm not going to do what I say, which now means you can ignore even when I make the smallest threat because I'm not going to back it up. So I think there's great power in, in doing what you say. I, I think the, on, the, the concept of, of just respecting other people and the humanity for who they are, both their time and their decisions. Uh, there are things that, that I do not control in the life of my children. They get to make a choice. Now, I get to choose the consequence for their choices, but they get to make the choice. And I'm going to respect your ability to make that decision. And if you make the wrong choice, I'm going to respect the decision that you made. And by and the way I respect that is I allow you to experience the negative consequence uh, that then kind of comes from that. And, and then I think the concept of admitting your mistakes is a centerpiece to integrity uh, because it shows an honesty that I'm going to own that, that I'm not going to project an appearance of perfection, uh, but instead I'm going to admit my faults. And I think in so many ways, this defines integrity. Integrity doesn't mean we never make mistakes. In many ways, integrity is defined by how do we handle those mistakes. And show me somebody who's going to own it, who's going to admit it, is going to try to make it right and understand it. That's a person full of integrity. Show me somebody who never makes mistakes, and um, they're projecting a strength that I bet you they don't really have. I would like for us to sort of end on courage. And you have another list there, which is so helpful. Five things that take courage for relationships to flourish, using courage and being the first to initiate things. The first being break the silence. Let's talk about break the silence and then the following four. Yeah. Well, I I love, first of all, I love that idea of I'll go first. I think those are three very powerful words. Of especially in a life where, generally speaking, uh, humility should should empower us to allow others to go first on things and and the good things, the positive things. But there are these moments in which we need to say, "No, I'm going to go first. And, and whenever I think about in marriage specifically, but also uh, in, in the concept of parenting, uh, that conflict occurs, and now there's a tension in the relationship. Okay, somebody needs to break the silence. Who's going to do that? Let me. Let me go first. Let me have the courage to, to show, okay, this is an issue. I'm not denying the issue, but it's just one issue. And the concept of something that is much larger, a love that is much greater, uh, I think about this as, as a pastor. You know, people will, will sometimes leave our church, and they won't always have a conversation before they leave, which is unfortunate because they should, and yet they won't. And it's a small town where we are, and I'll show up, and there they are. You know what? I'm going to go over to them. I'm going to shake their hand. I'm not going to bring up anything. I'm just going to show them, hey, we're okay. I don't understand the whole decision. We might disagree over it, but we're okay. Instead of just doing the dance of I know they're over there, and they know I'm over here, and we're trying to avoid each other, let's just get it over with. 
And so the idea of I'll go first to break the silence, uh, I, I think it just is this idea of honesty and integrity of let, let's just put this out on the table and show the humanity to one another uh, first and foremost. And what that does is it just saves us time. We're going to have to do this eventually. It, if you and your spouse are having a conflict in their silence, you're going to have to talk eventually. And it might be okay to allow some time to cool off. But somebody needs to break the silence. And if both partners have the mindset of I'll go first, think about how much time is saved, that we're going to work through this initial difficulty no matter what. It's, and it's true in, uh, then in other areas of life. I, th- I think that if you go first and you initiate that, it can alleviate blame from the other person and just ease, ease tensions all the way around. You don't have to assume anything anymore from if you speak your mind in a gentle, loving mm-hmm. way. Um, when it also diffuses, mm-hmm. I think the difficulty is you, you've experienced this, so we've all experienced mm-hmm. it. The longer the silence goes on, the bigger it becomes. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you'll just go ahead and break the silence, uh, then it just it keeps. Uh, one, one thing I talk about, I think it's probably in Happily, my, my other marriage book, is I talk about we need to keep small fights small. <laughs> A lot of times in relationships, small fights become big fights. Why? Because we don't fight properly. And one of the ways we don't fight properly is the tension is created, and instead of dealing with it, we avoid it, we hide, mm-hmm. right? We flee or we freeze, we pretend like it's not there, and that actually empowers it to grow. And then it becomes this huge thing that in reality it, it didn't need to be. And yet if you will have the courage to go first, it, it keeps that small issue a small issue. Admit fault. Yeah. This, this, that this, doesn't sound easy. <laughs> exactly. But it, go, it goes right to the core of the home of the brave, mm-hmm. right? Heart over appearances, truth and character over projection, uh, which means I'm going to be very quick to admit that I could be wrong, that I was wrong, that I shouldn't have done it in this way. And by by admitting that, uh, it now shows a, a bravery, a courage. And remember, in our home, in the Thompson home, if we're going to celebrate courage, when my child admits that they're wrong, I'm going to celebrate that. Now, the wrong action might have a consequence, but I'm going to celebrate the fact that you told me, and I'm going to show you how you telling me actually made things better in comparison to what was going what was going to be. Change. Yeah, and, and we all need to change. And so, for for me, in, in many ways, what this means is is a willingness to to grow, a willingness to to learn new skills, to learn new behaviors. Uh, especially in in relationships that are that have gone on for some time, or as as our kids grow and and parenting, we we kind of think that we have it figured out. We have to have this understanding that we never have it figured out, and so I I need to constantly be growing, constantly be changing, constantly be maturing. It's true in the Christian life, mm-hmm. and that should then have ramifications in every other aspect of life. And if if I'm not changing, then uh, I'm not keeping up with my wife. I'm Why does that take courage? Why does change take courage? Well, I think because I think we know that that many times for growth and maturity to happen, uh, weaknesses have to be revealed. We have to be vulnerable. 
uh, you think about you think about a good basketball team for a coach to really mm-hmm. develop his players. He has to point out their faults. He has to show them a better way. They have to learn new skills. And we get really comfortable with where we're at because we've kind of mastered what this means. I see it as a pastor all the time. There are some people who are just really comfortable in the chaos. And it's tragic for me. And they'll move from one chaotic relationship to another chaotic relationship to another chaotic relationship. And I can't figure it out until I realize that's all they know. Mm-hmm. And it takes a great deal of courage to step out of what you know, no matter how bad that it is. Mm-hmm. And, and so it takes a tremendous amount of courage to change because you're now going to a place you haven't been before and you don't know what it's going to be like. And yet it is far better than getting stuck where you actually are. I didn't bring this up earlier, but um, do people, to understand love, do you think they have to have experienced it or have it modeled for them in the appropriate way for them to to be able to project that and receive that? I, I think so. And, and I think uh, I think several things along those lines. One, I think that's the power of the church. That for those who didn't have grandparents like I had, who didn't mm-hmm. have parents like I had, or a sibling like I had, uh, the power of a church is you can hang on to somebody. I read just just this week of the power of a grandparent, that even in, in a child who is in a chaotic home, to have a grandparent that they spend time with, even if the grandparent can't rescue them from the chaos, that that gives the child a model of what life can be. Mm-hmm. And so I do think in, in order for us to love, we need, a, we need a model for that. I think ultimately that's what Jesus gives to all mm-hmm. of us, that without his example, we would have no idea what love is. And I think that's a mistake we often make. We just assume we know what love is. If love is a force that results in a feeling, then we, we think we all know what that feeling is. But if love is a choice that results in an action, we don't know what that looks like. And so somebody has to model it for us. And to me, it's the power of what's going on in a good relationship, in a good family, that hopefully my kids right now are learning to love and be loved, which will then propel them when they have their own homes, when when they're in workplaces. Fearless families, the only thing I don't like about the book really is I don't like the idea that some people might think, ah, this is just about a family, if you have two kids and a husband mm-hmm. and all that. No, no, no. We all have a group of people that we, we, we live life with, that we uh, assist, that we get shelter from. We, we all have these groups mm-hmm. that impact us. And the thought is that either our anxiety is going to add to the anxiety of that group or our love is going to add to the love of that group. And here's how we can change these things. And so um, I, I, I think we need a model. Uh, and in, in a healthy family, what's happening is I'm modeling for you and you're modeling for me and we're learning together how to, how to give that love. Forgiveness. Yeah, I mean, this is, you don't have to ask why this takes courage. I mean, because mm-hmm. we feel like and we fear that if we forgive, we'll be taken advantage of and be manipulated. Um, and yet, whenever we come back to this concept of trust and this concept of, uh, of heart that I know you're imperfect and uh, that, that I'm connected to you in a relationship and I'm submitting to the well-being of who we are, it means I'm going to have to learn to forgive and be forgiven, uh, which is a risky business, uh, and yet yet it's a much better way to live, to not have the weight of, uh, of my sin upon me, and then to not hold over you uh, the actions that maybe you, you did that were wrong. 
How many times do you think people attempt that before they actually achieve it? To say it and to actually live it. Yeah. I, I think I think the problem with forgiveness is we think it's a one-time thing mm-hmm. and we think it's done. And what we don't realize is it's a, it's an ongoing process. And and as we're as we're changing in life, as we're maturing in life, we have to go back and forgive people for different things now. Different, you know, if you had a if you had a parent that maybe let you down in some way, uh, whenever you were a child, you needed to forgive that. Uh, but then, whenever you're much older, you, you grieve that in a different way, mm-hmm. and so you have to forgive it again in, in a new way, in a, in a new kind of concept. I I, I do a lot of weddings. And sometimes there's an unspoken grief because a parent isn't present. Mm. Well, the child has to forgive why that parent isn't present. Then years later, a baby's born. Parent's still not present. Mm. Well, it's they're, they're re-forgiving the same thing, but just in a different mindset, in a different spot. And so I think what we get wrong about forgiveness is we miss the process part of it. We think it's just a one-time thing, and it's not. You had talked in the book, too. I'm, I'm going back. But fear, in our reality, we have childhood fears when we're a child that really have no basis. Yeah. But it was real to us at the moment. But as adults, there are some very um, valid concerns that we um, relate to as, understandably, fear. And talk talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, there's some there's some valid <laughs> no there's doubt. some valid reasons why people might be fearful. I mean, I, I distinctly <laughs> remember being a, a little kid, let's say eight, nine, ten, and laying in bed and thinking to myself, "I can't wait till I'm 18 when this will be easier, right?" Because the idea is life as a kid is so scary. Uh, and yet a lot of the things that kids are scared about, mm-hmm. you know, aren't necessar- necessarily reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, my son, you know, as we're going to bed at night, he can be thinking, be terrified about the monster in the closet, about what's underneath the bed, about the person that's going to break in. And while the person could break in hypothetically, that is not the, the most legitimate fear of all time, right? And, and, we, and he has the picture in his mind that my life isn't scary. What he doesn't know is that my life is far more frightening than his Mm -hmm. because I've lived long enough now to know what really can happen. And I see on a daily basis of how life can change in an instant, how, how literally you can be sitting here and have COVID and not even realize it Mm -hmm. and the consequences that can come from that of, of how the debt can suddenly be called in, how the relationship can break the secret revealed all those things are very legitimate. And so in Fearless Families, whenever I talk about that, I'm not saying that we need to get to a place where we feel no fear. I'm not saying that at all. Mm-hmm. We need to feel fear. As a matter of fact, I talk about, mm-hmm. talk about imagine your life as a car. And, and so you have a couple options. Many of us put fear in the driver's seat. It is dictating everything that we do. And that, that, that leads to horrific destinations. Mm-hmm. Fear is a horrible driver. Some of us put fear in the passenger seat, where it's not driving us, but you've probably driven with a passenger that's a little skittish in some way, and they're jumping at everything that happens, and they're pressing you know, the floorboard, trying to hit the brake, and their nervousness makes you nervous. But when fear's in the back seat, my kids ride in the back seat a lot, and uh, my, my daughter will say, Daddy, I don't think you know where you're going. Well, I really don't care what you think right now. You've never driven in your life, right? 
But every now and then they point out something that's legit. Hey, Daddy, do you see this? Oh, I didn't see that. I need to take that in consideration. So when, when, when my kids are in the back seat, they're really not dictating what I do. They're really not making me nervous. But they can add to, to my information knowledge. I generally ignore them, but sometimes I take into consideration what's going on. We need to have fear in the back seat of the lives of our cars that it does need to influence us. We do need to ask, is this safe or not? We need to be discerning about what's going on. We're never going to banish fear from our lives, but we do not have to be ruled by it. We don't have to make decisions based on fear. We don't have to idolize safety. We don't have to project a strength we don't really have. We don't have to live up materially to our neighbors and everything that's going on. We don't have to have power to rule over people in order to have successful and meaningful lives. Instead, love is a much better way than fearless families is showing us how to take fear out of the driver's seat, put it in the back seat, and to throw the keys of our lives to love and to let it dictate what we do. I'm going to not ask you about number five. People should get your book and read it. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us where they can get your book. Yeah, so they can go on Amazon, obviously, or kevinathompson.com slash fearlessfamilies or wherever books are sold at Target, Walmart.com, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, local stores like that. uh, They should be able to find it. But kevinathompson.com slash fearlessfamilies or Amazon is the easiest place. And if if they buy a copy... Go to kevinathompson.com slash fearlessfamilies and make sure that you get your free gift of that family values scripture because I think it could be the most meaningful aspect of the book. What other books have you written? So I've written several others. So I have two marriage books. One is Friends, Partners, and Lovers, What It Takes to Make a Marriage Work. And so it's the basic concept of here's what I think a spouse is supposed to do. And then the sequel to that is Happily, Eight Commitments of Couples Who Laugh, Love, and Last, where I take the Beatitudes and I show how they relate uh, to marriage. And then I also have a book called U-Turn that is just a compilation of blog posts primarily written toward college students of as a pastor, here's where I see people getting stuck. Uh, on on decision-making, on communication, on relationships. And, and so I just have a series of short writings on each of those topics uh, in, in thinking, if you ever get stuck in life, pull this book out, find the chapter that relates to you, and uh, and start there. If you are not a Christian, how will these books help you? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, these are not Christian books per mm-hmm. se. These are a, a basic concept of here is how I think we were designed to live and what will make life ba- better. Mm-hmm. And as a pastor, I daily interact with people in the best and worst times of their lives. And as an outsider looking in, I can see the choices that they're making uh, that are hindering them from flourishing. And then I can see choices that others are making that really are enabling them to live better lives. And so I think from that standpoint is where I write. What would you hope that someone would gain, the ultimate gain from reading Fearless Families? I think just a recognition of how fear is ruling us in a way that we can't even begin to comprehend and to know that it doesn't have to be that way. I agree. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Rise Up with Julie Baumgartner. Thank you for listening today. Rise up and let's be the best that we can be and listen to this podcast that will both motivate and educate. Thank you. Thank you.